Welcome to Rhyme and Reason, hosted by Dr. Barry. Today, Barry welcomes Joe Rubo and Denise Cassell. And now, here's Dr. Barry Ryman. Good afternoon or good morning, depending on where you're tuning in from. Um, welcome to the Rhyme and Reason podcast. This is episode number 16. Uh, that means this has been 16 straight weeks that we've had a podcast. Um, I think we're doing okay. Um, we're getting there. We're trying to bring you guys uh, a, a diverse group of uh, people onto the podcast. Uh, last week, we had uh, former Dallas Cowboys quarterback Quincy Carter. This week, uh, and my producers letting me know currently that we have four months of rhyme and reason. So I guess episode 16 doesn't sound quite as impressive as four whole months of rhyme and reason. So woohoo. Thank you, Greg, for that. Uh, this week we have something we haven't done before, which is a multiple guest platform. And I'm excited for this. I, I was actually on their show uh, uh, two Fridays ago, and it was one heck of an experience. Uh, they have this uh, radio slash TV show that's filmed here in a studio not too far from where I live. They had uh, Chef Silver Fox, uh, who's become a dear friend of mine now. I follow all of his posts on Facebook and all the delicious food that he puts up. Uh, so Denise and Joe, when I do bring you on, I'm going to let you know now that there are going to be just some Fridays that I happen to pop into the studio uh, and just hang out and, and wait for Chef Silver Fox's food. But I did really enjoy the two of you guys and your banter. Uh, Denise is the co-host of The Sixth Borough, uh, which is a show with her and Joe. Um, you know, Joe is an interesting character. I, I think I'm one of the last people on earth that have not seen the movie that that he starred in, but I'm going to give you a little history on Joe. One of his earliest films, he played a wrestler in the critically acclaimed 1982, and I love this guy, Robin Williams comedy drama, The World According to Garp. However, he is most known for co-starring as David in Boaz Davidson's The Last American Virgin, which was in 1982. And he also played Arnie uh, in the teen film slash sex comedy called Hot Chili. And later he had a minor role in the 1966 movie, I'm sorry, 1996 movie Striptease, which I believe off the top of my head, I believe that was Demi Moore. Um, so we're going to have to find out if Joe actually hit the pole um, in that movie, I don't remember him seeing seeing him swinging from a pole, but you know we'll find out. He's also made numerous television appearances on The Late Show with David Letterman through the '80s, and most memorably, and I, I think my producer is going to show us the clip. Uh, but most memorably, he played Ray Letterman, which was David Letterman's stepson. Um, and and once we bring Joe and Denise on, I'll have Greg roll that clip for us to start the show. Um, I'm very excited to bring both of these people, but more so just their ties to recovery as well. Uh, so, Greg, if we could bring on both Denise and Mr. Joe Rubo. There we are. Uh, you know, you both have beautiful faces, and, and I'm hoping that 
our audience is tuned in um, to take some of the camera off of me and focus on you guys. But, you know, this is the the actual live version where people can actually watch. And then later today, these episodes, this episode will be uploaded to both Spotify and Apple iTunes podcasts and a few other streaming sites. But they will not be able to see your beautiful faces. Um, with that out of the way, um, Joe, we want to embarrass you first. So I hope you don't mind. And Greg, I'm going to ask you to roll the clip from when Joe was on the David Letterman show. Yeah. Did, did you? Uh... <laughs> I'm out here, Hal, with the Red Army, okay? Letter number four. Dear Dave, whenever kids appear on your show or are mentioned on the show, you seem to be very fond of them. Well, that's true. I love the kids. Uh, is this just an act, or do you hope to have some of your own someday? Uh, Jody Owens from Utah. Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah, I would love nothing more to have a, an awful lot of kids one day. But right now, Jody, I'm very, very happy with my two stepchildren. Uh, of course, Tammy, who lives on an honor farm in Texas. And Ray, uh, Ray, who works right here on the show. Is Ray anywhere around here? Ray? Where is Ray? Where is, is my step? There he is. It's my uh, stepson, Ray. Ray, come on over here. I just want you in front of America to know that I love you just as if you were my very own son. Yeah, the luckiest boy alive. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also, I want you to know that despite what everybody else is saying, I, I don't think you had anything to do with the stealing that's going on around here. Have any money? Oh, yeah. There you go. Nice to see you, Ray. Uh, will, will you be home for supper? Screw you. <laughs> nice. Stepson Ray. All right. Yeah. First of all, like that mullet. Yeah. I mean, you looked a little like, and I shared this with you a couple weeks ago, but you looked a little like John Travolta. Did, <laughs> did anyone ever make any comparisons? No. More, back more, in your heyday to John Travolta. More of Joe Pesci than John Travolta. Ah, I see that too. <laughs> ah, you. <laughs> funny. Funny how. Funny like I'm here to amuse you. Funny like I should put clown shoes on and dance around. Funny how. Ah, gotcha. I love him. So, and and Denise, you know, watching that, I know you've seen that clip before. And you know Joe intimately uh, by by sharing a a mic with him every week. What do you think of when you see him up there back in in the 80s like that? He's a hottie. Still is a hottie. He looks great. (laughs) And he hasn't changed a bit. His his demeanor is the same. Um, I didn't know him back then, of course, but I did see the movie many times, having to grow up in the same time era that he did. And um, that movie was a great movie. He did that. That was a huge um, rite of passage movie, not just for him, but for all of those around the, on the platform of that movie. Can can you guys tell the audience? Because uh, you know, listen, the movie what came out, I believe it said it was nineteen eighty two. Um, you know, I'll date myself. I was born in 75, so I was seven years old, you know, when that movie came out. And I'll be honest with you, I should have done my research and prepared and actually watched the movie. And I will, I promise. I just haven't yet. Can you tell us a little bit about The Last American Virgin? Um, How you got the role, what the movie was about, your experience? Well, it was a typical 80s high school comedy 
guy goes after the girl. Guys are trying to get girls. Try guys trying to get laid. Typical movie. And you know, I played the comic relief. It was kind of a love story between uh, the character Gary and the char- uh, character Karen. He was chasing her throughout the movie. The other guy got her pregnant. He paid for the pregnancy, and in the end, she winds it back with, with the other guy. But me, throughout the movie, I was just going crazy, having fun, getting crabs, all kinds of good stuff. <laughs> You're getting crabs. So that was back when bushes were in, I assume. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. I guess. Yeah. I mean, the crabs just fall by the wayside these days. I haven't heard that term. In I like haven't heard years. that term. I, I haven't. That was the first time I heard it when we did the movie. But I was young. I was only seventeen. <laughs> I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Yeah. Oh, so you were seventeen in the movie? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were you a virgin at the time of filming? No. Okay. <laughs> you probably say that. <laughs> you know that just that just killed all my dreams of the last American Virgin. The, but okay. but um. Lawrence was on our show a couple of weeks ago, and he said he was a virgin. You know, I, I was – well, listen, I, I was on that show with you. Yes. That was the night that I was there that Lawrence came on, and he played Gary? Yes. Okay, so – but based off his sexual orientation, which he, he is homosexual, right. was he identifying as homosexual at the time? Nothing, or no. No, Not actually, then. Okay. Actually, he told us a story that after the movie, he had a, a, an incident with a girl. He got her pregnant. The same thing, kind of thing happened. So I think he came out later, or I don't know what I don't, I don't know the personal stuff, but he, right. So he's he's gay, and so he did in fact have sex with a girl his first time and got her pregnant. Does that right. mean that he has a kid? No, no. They um, had an abortion, just like in the movie. Okay. <laughs> As a matter of fact, you know, I was the only straight. I found out later the only straight male on the cast, all the male guys were, were gay. I didn't know that back then. You know, it, it wasn't like it is today. No, but it was kind of everybody hid their sexuality back then. Makes and, uh, you sense. Know, it, you know, as with the years went on, it came out when, you know, we did a, a reunion signing like 10 years ago. It was funny. Everybody mentioned it. They go, Joe, you know, you were the only straight guy on the cast. I said, wow. Cool. <laughs> and it's a fitting cast with Last American Virgin, so that would yeah. kind of make sense. Yeah. Um, De- Denise, <clears throat> how did you and Joe meet? I knew of Joe um, because of a former partner of mine that worked with Joe um, a while back, but I actually truly met him after he reached out to me saying that he would like to be on my show, which the other show is called Power Up Radio. And I said, yeah, of course. I knew that there was a great story in there. And he came on and we heard his story. And it was just great chemistry, I think, from the beginning. And I asked him to come back on the show as a, you know, just to be part of the show. Because the show is an open platform. Anyone can come and participate to be on the show with us. We're always welcoming shout outs. And I said, absolutely. Come over and be, you know, part of the audience and come on. And came back on the show. And before he knew it, it was like to be a great co-host. And that's how the six borough was born because we both are from New York and um, we just thought it was a very catchy way to bring on um, with his following and his nature and the way he is, it would be just a great combination. And we just had great chemistry and it just steamrolled from there. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to see how my memory serves me um, at my ripe old age of 46 and 11 twelfths. Okay. I'll be 47 <laughs> next month. Uh you have now had 
4445 broadcasts. Does that sound right? Well, Power Up itself is approaching 60. And the borough, the sixth borough, is approaching its um, eighth show, I think closer to 10. And um, so the, the sixth borough is relatively new, but it's just blown up because of just the nature of the show. But Power Up was the original show and still remains. It's the second part of our two hour uh, radio TV show on Friday nights. So tell me a little bit about Power Up. Um, I know that you were not in this field. Uh, you were not in broadcast journalism, right? For That's not what your career was. And you right. made a shift at some point. Do you want to kind of tell the the anatomy or the, the journey you took and what that shift looked like? That's funny because now you sound like me. <laughs> that's exactly what I do on Power Up. I ask for the journey, the comeback. But yes, it is true. My um, actual original career was in finance. I have, during a 27-year career, in finance that included working in the boardroom in New York City with um, in the banking industry and um, moved on down to Florida eventually and have worked with Fortune 500 companies in the financial district. Um, only at some point realized that I was tired of being within the industry and I guess the universe heard me and um, I wound up selling my book of business, took a little bit of time off and but before that, this industry is very small, and I'm learning this as I'm getting further and deeper into this, which is now um, 10 years into media. And the show started off. Well, I should I started off by someone asking me to come on and be on uh, a networking show, and I just thought it was just there to go to network. But it really, it was for me to become um, a show host to interview business owners. That show is called Thumbs Up SoFlow, which is still out there. And um, 28 shows later. Um, someone had seen me and asked me to be a foodie reality show host. And then from there, the producer, um, Freddie Centauri of the um, AMP2.com production studios, they um, asked me to come in just to say hi and how are you doing? And it turned out that it was not so much of an interview, but he had said, you know, why don't you come down to the studio and let's talk a little bit. Before I knew it, he had me put on behind the mic i was he put me on the behind the mic without even realizing i was doing it and we spoke about nothing it was like a seinfeld act and i didn't realize i was actually live and after that 20 minutes of being live on that show he had asked me and said to me um would you like to be behind the mic again i said no i really like it i think it's fun i had never done it before never behind a mic interviewing uh -huh. and it just it was so natural it happened that he goes you need your own show and that's how power up was born I just came back again and again and again, and he kept testing me, and we kept doing it over and over. And um, I was just interviewing. In fact, the first night of my interview was Halloween, the night before Halloween of last year. That's incredible. So that's Are you to be. And here I am today, and sitting in the likes of Joe, and interviewing people I never thought I'd interview, meet people in movies I never thought I'd meet, um, and hear stories that are just off the charts as far as you know the comeback story, because that's really what personally for me was. Um, something, uh, a comeback for me personally from just transitioning from one career and diving into a whole nother career and really nothing really ever having any practice or schooling on it. It just happened. And so huh. it's a little bit of a background, a little long-winded, but yeah, that's that's pretty much how it all came to be. I love it. So you're basically saying that I just need to show up every Friday and just sit there to become part of the show. Is oh my God, I Joe, did he nail it? Yeah, he got it. You got it. 
That, All right, so just, we, want. we want everyone to come on to the show and it's almost like a networking two hour stretch is what we're trying to produce. Anyone that shows up, I mean, within reason, it's a, it's a small studio, but there's a whole floor that we can actually accommodate everyone. And we give you shout outs and we welcome sponsors. And it's, it's kind of like a family show, which is what the six barrels are all about. Right. La Familia. And, and the people that come there, like yourself, everyone becomes friends. Everyone has relationships afterwards, business and friendships. Everyone Listen, I, I, I was there one night, okay, and I'm going to be invited over to Chef Silver Fox's house for dinner, okay? And then he didn't invite I, us yet, but he invited you. That's not Well, good. maybe we could all go together. <laughs> Listen, I'll, I, I'll tell you what. I'll keep showing up on Fridays, okay? okay. And you guys will become part of my posse. There and then go. I will – I have the in with the Silver Fox, and I will – Invite you guys as my plus twos, we uh, and we can we can make it into silver. So, and then I got home from your show, and I got a message from a, a girl that I went to high school with, and uh, she said to me, "You did a great job on Power Up the other night," and I said, "Oh wow, you saw that?" She said, "Yes." I said, "How did you even see that?" And you know what she said, Nico. Okay, so Nico, <laughs> Nico, who was in your studio, this is his girlfriend, uh, who who I went to high school with. Wow. So, oh my goodness, just all in one show, all the different the connections that right. were made, and you you guys really did. I would literally, and I I'm giving you guys shit, but I I would just continue to keep coming back because it was that entertaining, Thank and you, you know it, it was an honor to come on and share my comeback story or however you want to put it. And the way Denise found me, I think, was from a post that was made about me of uh, my sober anniversary. And she reached out to me, which is awesome. Now, Denise, do you have any connections to the recovery community based off your own personal experience or loved ones that were in your life? Or what does that look like? Um, I don't have, per se, any personal relationships, uh, family that is part of that uh, recovery uh, question that you're asking of, but the couple things that I can say is that I did go to school and have a degree in psychology, and I did spend my internships in working at recovery centers, and that was very eye-opening, um, which was part of the internship. I, I did think I was going to continue the path of, of going into being a therapist, but ran out of money, so I had to go in a different direction, and so um, my ex-husband, um, he ran a uh, drug and alcohol rehab center for teens for 15 years during our marriage. Mm -hmm. So that was a very big involvement personally for me, did a lot of volunteer time, heard a lot of stories. I uh, learned a lot about just the circle of life around there and that it's from all walks of life. This, uh, you know, anyone that's involved or needs recovery, there's no specific group. It's everyone. It touches everyone. And the work that goes to being to support Anyone that's in the recovery process is critical. The circle is very, very critical. So that's my exposure. Um, and very importantly, helping them, you know, volunteering just was a really great experience. Got connected and close to a few of the kids. Um, but some of the stories are very heartbreaking, very, very heartbreaking. And it's painful and it's not an easy road. It isn't. It takes a lot of courage. Listen, you said some important things there. And, and one thing that really stuck out with me and, and listen, we and just to preface this, we love to joke around and and on this show, 
Um, and, and we mix in some vulnerability and we mix in some seriousness and we talk a lot of recovery and mental health and addiction, but we like to cut up. But you, you did say one thing here. You talked about um, everybody is affected in one form or another by addiction slash recovery. One or the two, right? And I think the stats are one in four people are directly affected or uh, uh, directly or indirectly affected by addiction, okay, from substances, not even from all the other isms, right? Food and sex and work and all, uh, you know, all the other uh, potential gambling, all the other isms that we talk about when it comes to addiction. This is not a show on a rare genetic disease like mesothelioma or, you know, where, uh, you know, one-tenth of a percent of the population could relate to. It's someone's mother, someone's father, stepfather, stepmother, uh, daughter, son, uncle, cousin. Everybody knows somebody <clears throat> that has struggled with addiction and there are a lot of, and, and in my opinion, have been a lot of misconceptions when it comes to talking about a quote-unquote addict, right? For many, many years, there was a huge stigma associated. You know, Joe, you talked about a stigma associated with being gay, right, back in, in the early 80s that was not something people just openly came out and talked about, and it was widely accepted by the general population. Exactly. Addiction, addiction is very similar, right? When you hear the word addict, or, or as people used to call them, junkies, you mm -hmm. picture people who are homeless under a bridge with a needle stuck in their arm. And that was the stigma that was associated with addiction for decades upon decades in this country. And, you know, I would say about 20 years ago, maybe a little bit more, um, addiction started to get a little bit more widely recognized by the general public. And that stigma started to subside somewhat. Now, everything depends on culture, right? If right. you are from a, and I'm going to say this, a, a Latin family where typically Latinos, right? There's a stereotype, and, and I'm half Latino, that your business is kept within the family, you don't ask for help. Same thing with Italians, right? And, and I'm exactly. assuming there's a few Italians on here right now where everything is handled by the family. You don't ask for help. Joe, boys don't cry. Suck it up. Exactly. Yeah. Deal with it, right? There, there's a lot of different stigmas that have been implanted in the general public. And, and over the past, we'll call it 10 to 20 years, more so probably closer to 10 years, there has been an increasingly less, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, but we're, we're becoming more hip to the word addiction, okay? And the country is recognizing this. Insurance companies are recognizing this as a disease, that this is not about a person who needs to go from bad to good. It's about a person who is sick and needs to get better. Okay. Um, and, and this is all leading somewhere, I promise, because Joe, I want to get a little into your story. You had a ton of success as a young adult. Okay. Right. And um, I know you've talked about this openly before. So, you know, I'm going to bring it up now. 
but you faced your trials and tribulations, um, you know, on your journey between X age and X age until you wound up in the penitentiary. And Denise, you know him. Okay. He's not a bad person. No. I, I know just from sitting with him for two hours that he's not a bad person. And I Look believe at him. you just want to squeeze him. Look I just want to, I want to, I want to do this. To I want to squeeze his cheeks. Yeah. And you want to give him, him a cannoli and give and call him Shana Punham. Okay. So, so he is not a bad person that needed to become good. He was afflicted by the same disease that I'm afflicted with. Okay. That took him down a path that, you know, looking back, some would call it an insane path. Right. But when oh, we're yeah. in active addiction, we do insane things. And, and I think we all know at this point the definition of insanity, right? Insanity is doing the same things over and over and over again, expecting different results. This time it's going to be different, right? You know what the definition of sanity is? Not doing the same thing again. Doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting the same results. Follow? Right? So insanity, we're doing the same things over and over, thinking this time it's going to be different. Sanity is... If I know if I do that, this is going to happen again. At least that's of a sane mind. Exactly. Now, wisdom, yeah, wisdom is not doing the same things over and mm-hmm. over again. And so, you know, when we talk about the serenity prayer, grant me the serenity, accept things I cannot change, the courage, and the wisdom to know the difference, that's the wisdom. So, Joe, I want to get a little bit into your story, your recovery. Um, can you tell me a little bit about? the day or, or the time frame that you noticed that how you were living was a little bit off. Okay. Um, yeah. and, 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 and I preface this with saying, and I look back at my addiction is I tended to surround myself with people who were doing similar things to what I was doing. So I didn't feel so bad about how I was living. You know, laugh, I'm wondering you if that's part of your you, story. You laugh, you laugh about it the next day, you know? Right. So tell me a little bit about your story, um, you know, what happened and where you wound up. I'm going to just tell you, uh, I'm going to tell you briefly what happened, but I'm going to tell you the first time I ever did cocaine, that was my drug drug of choice. I was uh, Mm -hmm. 21 years old. I was working the door of a nightclub. I was the doorman of a nightclub in New York. And, um, you know, everybody, even when I did the movie, uh, you know, people were getting high and stuff around me. I, you know, I didn't touch a drug or anything. I drank alcohol as a kid, but I didn't touch pot or nothing until I was older. So I'm at the door and this girl comes up to me and she has a long fingernail and she gives me a hit on my nose. I've been chasing that same high ever since. Mm. You know, that, that, that high made me feel euphoric. Like, wow, this is the best thing I ever had. And, you know, it just started happening. I was making money at night working in the club. And then I'd go out afterwards and spend everything I made on partying and drinking. And, you know, then I settled down and got married. But I noticed something, um, Barry, that every time I start drinking heavily, I have to do cocaine. I never set in my mind. I can't. I don't get up in the morning and do a line. I never did. You know, it's if I drink, I have to do it. It's like a cross. It's a cross addiction is what it is. So, you know, I'd say to myself, tonight I'm just going to drink. I'm not going to do anything. Next thing you know, it's nine in the morning. Dealers coming in and out of the house. 
half naked girls <laughs> and it just went on and on and on and you know it started interfering with my marriage so much in the early part you know i had two kids and i was still going out sneaking out once in a while and partying that i you know i went for help i started i got help let me ask you something real quick did did the cocaine interfere with your marriage or was it the half naked girls that were in and out <laughs> The half naked girls were before the marriage. Uh, okay. You know, All right. Just yeah. clarifying for the audience. Yeah. Okay. But, go ahead. But, you know, I'd, I'd go out and say, honey, I'm going to play pool with my friends and this and that. Next thing I know, I'd be home the next morning. And, you know, it's not healthy for a marriage. Not good. And, you know, then I started getting into other things and started making a lot of money. And the more money you make, the more partying you do. You know, and it just seems like it was never enough money for my partying habits and my lifestyle. So, you know, I kept stealing, doing what I had to do to make more and more money, more and more money. And finally, it, it all hell broke loose. I got in trouble, went to prison. I took um, the 500-hour drug course in prison, you know, and I think I wanted a few people that actually listened to the whole thing while I was in there. And um, I was clean. I came home. From Wait, back up, back up for a second. How old were you when you went to prison for the first time? Um, 39. 39, okay. Yeah. And, and was it like a, what led you there? Was it kind of a blue collar crime, it was a white, white collar? Coll white collar crime. It was a RICO conspiracy, fraud, racketeering, all kinds of, you know, good stuff. And yeah, it was, it sounds like the scene out of Goodfellas. Okay, continue. <laughs> it was a, a five-year sentence. And um, it took a year and a half off my sentence because I took the drug program. And, you know, I had proof that I had a drug problem. I went to rehab. I violated my um, my um, bond. I had a good urine. So, uh, you know, I, I, I got to take the drug program. You know, and then it, it helped. When I got home, I was good for a while. And, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I broke off a few times, um, maybe more than a few times. <laughs> and I just, the last time I got drugs, uh, um, since I've been home, I've been since since the time I went away to the time I'm home, I haven't touched anything. A drink, I have a drink once in a while, one or maybe some wine with dinner or something, but that's it because I know what it leads to. Mm -hmm. And and were you in prison in New York or here in Florida? I was in Alabama um, the first time I was in um, Montgomery, Alabama prison camp. Okay. The Air Force prison camp, which was, is, you know, it was it was good to place to be for prison. And uh, the last time I was in Miami, the building downtown Miami, and then the camp. TJK. Really, yeah, they, and I was in um, FDC Miami, and then I went to um, the camp by the by the zoo. They call the, okay. the zoo also. <laughs> they call it the zoo. So, what yeah. was? Uh, can talk a little bit about your experience, you know, in prison. Um, you know, did you wake up many days with a moment of clarity and say, like, this is not where I envision my life to be at 39, 40, 41 years old? Every day. You know, talk about, you know, uh, the, the how old were your kids at the time? Um, my, kid, you my, know. Kids were, my kids were young. My daughter just was 12. My son, Joey, was six. He was at the perfect age. I was... Uh, coaching his, his, his baseball teams and stuff like that. My little girl was really young when I went away, you know what I mean? And uh, she said to her mother, you know, really, she really, my, the, my ex told him that I went away to the army. 
and uh, she yelled at my mom. She goes, you kept telling daddy to leave, and he finally did, and he's not coming back. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. So, so they would, didn't know you were in prison when you were there. So that means you didn't see them for three plus years. Exactly. I saw them once. She took them to see me in the building in Miami. We were wearing the green outfits, so they really. My daughter knew she was old enough, and you know, uh, my my son's like, Dad, why can't you get up and come to the vending machines with us? And I said, oh, It's just the rules. Then he figured it out. But you know. One thing I got to thank God for, my relationship, and Denise knows this, but my kids has never changed. Um, my, my kids adore me, and I adore them. We're so close, all three of, you know, all three of them. Uh, yeah, I love, I love to hear that. I mean, yeah. I can't, I can't imagine, you know, I have, uh, I have two girls in my life that are 10 and 8, and, yeah. you know, just, uh, you know, if I go two days without seeing them, it seems like an eternity. And I, I just can't imagine what you went through and what your heart felt like. Oh, yeah. You know, at the, at the time you were down. And I think it's typically right. I mean, prison isn't great and it's not fun, but it serves a purpose. It sure right? does. And, and, it wakes and, you up. And, and listen, you know, at the end of the day, more than likely, had you not been living in addiction, you probably would have made better choices. Not probably. Uh, Definitely. I'm just giving, yeah. I'm giving you a little out. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but so, you know, it comes up to, the old argument, which isn't even that old, right? Treatment versus incarceration. Um, now it's one thing you're throwing away a fucking scumbag who rapes little kids or right. someone who commits first degree murder or, you know, uh, even armed robbery, right? Uh, you know, let them rot. Okay. Go to right. prison. But you know, when, when you're talking about these uh, white collar crimes, um, that are are motivated typically by finances exactly. to support someone's addiction. Even just the you know breaking and entering, the the shoplifting, the yeah. you know the possession, all all of these crimes that depending on how many times you've been arrested can lead to prison time, right? Not just jail time. No, it it, it definitely can. And with the with the um, program I took. Um, you couldn't take if you had any violence at all on your record, even um, domestic violence. You could not take the course. So, you know what you're saying. There's there's people that probably could have used the course. You know, people that had a fight, maybe somebody had a gun in their car or something. But if any kind of violence or gun charge, you could not take the, the course. Yeah, I, I was so, lucky in the way that you know I was able to take it. I mean, and that's great. You know, and and there are. Uh, people whose lives are saved because they've been sent to prison. Yeah. All right. So right. I don't want to be, I don't want to be the anti-prison, you know, prison isn't a good idea for some people because even people who are struggling with addiction, that is literally their only way to stop at the time. Okay. And, and I've seen it in Florida. We have a, a law, it's called a Marchman Act. And I don't know if you've heard of it before, sure, if you're familiar it. with it. But Get it to my brother. Um, okay, so so different yeah. than a Baker Act, right? A Baker Act is strictly psychiatric. Someone suicidal, yeah. homicidal, you can get them and put them involuntarily into a hospital for typically 72 hours. And it gives a chance for a psychiatrist to assess the person, potentially get them stabilized on meds until they deem them safe to come back out. Yeah, a Marchman now. Act. Right. So a Marchman Act is very different. A Marchman Act and, and it's 
and it is it is for Florida only. And essentially, a family can petition a judge and sign off on an order uh, where they have a treatment resistant loved one who just refuses to get help, but they really are, you know, they're going to die if if they don't get help. Right. So they're basically posed and and an order is sent and signed off by the judge and they're served. And the, the, the client is given a choice and the choice is court, right. Court mandated treatment. And that could be to any facility, right. Depending on, on their finances or their insurance or any of that stuff. It doesn't just have to be a state run facility, but court mandated treatment, or they can go to jail for six months. Right. And in the 15 plus years that I've been working in this industry, I don't think I've ever encountered a person who's been served a Marchman act that has chosen the jail. <laughs> no, no, definitely. Let me tell you, it, it saved my brother was clean for almost three years when we did that to him. Yeah. He was, wow. He was for almost three years. And, you know, he went off. Once you, oh, meaning you Marchman acted him and then he stayed clean for three yeah, years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm like, why are you, why are you Marchman acting a three year clean person? But no, no. I got was, it after we Marchman acted him and he went to treatment, he was clean for almost three years. And he was, I was bad. I was bad. But my brother was beyond. He'd be gone for weeks. We didn't even know where he was. You know? Yeah. Listen, it's a it's a really great thing to have. Um, yeah. Cindy is chiming in, very informative. I mean, we want people to be aware of these things because it is and has been and will continue to be a lifesaver. Right. right. This is really what it comes down to. When we deal with addiction, it is life or death. There, exactly. There's really there's no in between. Okay. This is, and, and it's funny because you know if you get cancer. And you go to an oncologist and the oncologist says, you have stage three lung cancer and you need to do chemotherapy for the next 12 weeks, followed up by 12 weeks of radiation. Your first thought might be, no way, you're in denial, whatever. You go to a second oncologist and the oncologist the second time tells you, yes, I agree with the first oncologist. You have stage three lung cancer, 12 weeks of chemo. 12 weeks of radiation, and I will give you a 70% chance to survive. What do you do, Joe? You take the treatment, of course. Oh, my God. Sign me up. Yeah. Right? What he's not saying is you're going to go through, okay, you're going to lose your hair. You're going to be frail. You're going to have a metallic taste in your mouth. You're going to be vomiting. You're going to feel like complete dog shit, and there's still a 30% chance that you're going to die. Right. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, um, Barry, I want to say that what you're saying as far as um, addiction, the whereabouts, that moment that Joe, you said, I got to make a change here. It's not just in the association of drugs and alcohol, it could be an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you open up the circle bigger, you know, or you have, and I will say, I'm a cancer survivor. And I remember the day I woke up and it was two years after because you spent two, you spent a good amount of time in survival mode. You're really not thinking much about a lot of different things. Um, but what you are also thinking about how others are feeling, you don't want them to feel bad. And sometimes I think those that are going through addiction, it's like they withdraw. And sometimes you don't even know that they're experiencing an addiction. Um, you never admit it, right? You never admit it. Yeah. 
to yourself. Yeah. And that's what I had. I had to admit to myself I had a problem, not so much because of the cancer, but because the deck was clear and I could think a little clearer, I realized that I was in a situation that I needed to get out of to live again and to see anew and live a new perspective and not have that influence around me that kept me doing the same thing over and over and repeating that situation that wouldn't let me leave. And it had nothing to do with drugs, but it had to do with the relationship situation. So to your point, this is, I know we're talking about the recovery, Joe, your, your story is just amazing. And, and um, you know, you, you've been in the celebrity world and that is a very vulnerable world. Anything can happen in that world. But again, it goes back to what you're saying, Barry, was your circles. Um, ensuring that your circles are supporting you and giving you and guiding you in the right direction. And it, it's authentic to you that it's real. It's not uh, someone that's misguiding you or being false, right? I mean, fake. A hundred percent. You see now, my circle is really small now. I mean, I used to ride with a big herd. My circle is small. I hardly go anywhere. I go to work with you. I do my, my job during the day working on the TV stuff. No more going out with all these wannabe Klingon partiers, bottle poppers, cocaine whores, all this stuff. I just stay away from it, you know? And and Barry, as an expert, tell me if I'm right about this. You could go for any treatment in the world, the best treatment, the best doctors, the best of everything. But if you don't want it, it's not going to work. Uh, I, I, listen, I, I have, and, and I agree with you, okay? If you are completely and totally resistant to it and you have the FU mentality, chances are it's not going to work. But I will tell you that I think this is a common misconception and, and, and not to poo-poo on your parade, but I didn't want to get clean when I did. Right. Okay. I wanted the consequences to stop, but I wasn't, I didn't say the day I surrendered, uh, June 19th, 1996, it was a Wednesday. And I was intervened on by my family and a doctor, and I got tossed right. into a detox center that night. I didn't wake up that day saying, today's my last day to get high. Okay? And, and you could relate to this. Getting high is literally like getting a hug from God. Okay? When somebody comes into treatment, the concept should not be to try and, quote, unquote, brainwash them into believing they don't like getting high. Right. The concept of treatment is helping that client understand that the longer they don't get high, their life will improve. And then just then, when the payoff of being clean outweighs the payoff of getting high, does that commitment set in? And what I mean by that is to this day, I would love to get high. Why? Because it feels good. OK, <laughs> but I, I, I make that choice not to, because I don't want to give up everything I've worked for in the past 26 plus years mm -hmm. for 15 minutes of happiness. Right. Right. And, and we are the only people in the world that will trade in 15 minutes of happiness for a lifetime of misery. It's so okay? true. Feel that. Okay. We are the yeah. only people in the world that will trade 15 minutes of happiness for a lifetime of misery with the hopes that that happiness is going to continue and continue and continue when we know good and well that it doesn't. The, the example I was bringing up before about the cancer doctor, this disease of addiction kills more people than car accidents, 
HIV and cancer combined wow. every year. That. That's it's a insane. big, big number. Wow. Okay. So, but when somebody who's seeking help goes to a doctor and the doctor recommends, look, it's time to surrender and you need to go in and seek treatment for the next 30 or 60 days or whatever it is. Oh, but I just think I could do this on an outpatient. No, no, no. You need to actually come in. You have to be medically detoxed. You have to have treat. You know what, Doc? I, I really appreciate what you're saying and the recommendations you're making, but I really feel like I can do this on my own. I think I can just go see a therapist once a week. Uh, maybe I can just cut down and moderate. And you know what? Uh, cocaine was my problem, but uh, I can manage doing crack on the weekends. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and the disease of addiction is the only disease in the world that tries to make you believe you don't have a disease. Yeah. Think about wow. that for a second, okay? True. Because there's no blood test for it. You get cancer, you go to that oncologist, even if you're in fucking denial, you go to a second oncologist, you get a second opinion, they it's both there. say the same thing. You don't say, okay, I don't have cancer. I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm going to live in denial, right? But when you suffer from addiction, there is no blood test. Yep, you're positive for addiction. I think only then would it make it easier to make that decision to get better. Yeah, you, you know, you sure are positive for addiction, right? Yeah. You take a COVID test and you're positive for COVID. You don't try to make yourself believe that you're not. Whatever, whatever the illness is, but addiction is the only disease that tries to make us believe we don't have a disease. Puts you in complete denial. Correct. And what does denial stand for? Don't even notice I am lying. Wow. Love it. Love, love that. It. Joe, that's <laughs> yeah. great, right? I love it. Yeah. I'm never going to remember it, but I love it. <laughs> Think about it. Because when we're in denial, we don't know we're in denial. We actually believe the lies we tell ourselves. Yeah. yeah but that's so true in so many circumstances, you know. You are speaking at such a large platform. I know that we're concentrating on this particular topic, but my God, it is so true. That denial component goes with so many different things. It's, you know, from, it again, does. abuse to eating disorders to um, self being, you know, hurting yourself and being in marriages that are just going nowhere. And that, that, that is so true. That's wow. You nailed the That was a big nail right there in the head. That was big. Listen, I'm available on Fridays. Okay. <laughs> you know, we you can know, have, you know, Joe, Barry, there was something, Joe, you might remember he said this. I thought that was really a huge takeaway as well, that when you were in treatment and Joe, you quit, you can speak to this too, of course, is that when you were in, it was like crap in the beginning, you felt horrible in the beginning. But then after week number one, I was like, okay, I'm feeling a little better. Remember you told me that you went through this transition and you gave it a chance. You trusted that. Yeah. All right, let's see how I feel. And, and you reach the 90 day mark. I'm like, wow, I feel so different. There is a big difference. It's staying yeah. that course. And I, you, that was to me a big takeaway in our interview with you. Well, I was, I was kind of, I was forced into treatment. I couldn't leave. I had to do it. You know, it's, if you don't want to do the program, you lose the year, you lose the year and a half off. I mean, it's like a no brainer. So I, I stuck through it and I hated it in the beginning and I hated it. And then, you know, as they're showing the videos and as they're talking and as people are telling their stories, you could relate to everything. You're saying, wow, was that really this? And then from doing so much cocaine in the past to not doing it, I'd be sitting there and all of a sudden my, my, my nose would just start running, you know, so destroyed inside. 
and I'm saying, wow, you know, I really did have a problem. I do have a problem. You know, sometimes maybe I'm going to backtrack and say what I said last time. You have to want it. Yes, you do. But sometimes being forced into it and not being able to leave is a good thing, too. There you go. See, there you go. I was literally picked up by the back of my neck. Yeah. I mean, again, I was two months shy of 21 years old when I got clean. Uh -huh. Okay. And you might say, you know, you heard in the program, oh, I spilled more Coke on my tie than you ever snorted. Listen, motherfucker. I'm six foot three inches tall. I was 140 pounds soaking wet, having grand mal seizures in and out of hospitals. Okay. I was emaciated. My life was not going good. There's right. a lot of damage and destruction you can do with crack cocaine, um, despite oh, yeah. whatever age you are. Okay. So, but at the end of the day, I did not want to stop. Okay. And, and, and I'm saying that clearly right now. Okay. Right. It is not my job today as a professional to convince you that you don't like to get high. It is my job as a professional to bring up all of the great things that can occur in your life if you just stop doing that one thing that causes all the consequences. Yep. You follow? Yeah. So recovery, and we've talked about it on this show before, recovery is really about delayed gratification where addiction is completely and totally centered in instant gratification. And I, I think when I was on your show, I might have brought up the concept, and, and I could be wrong, but I might have brought up the concept of working out in a gym, okay? And the first day you go to that gym and you see people all ripped and all cut up, you want that all of a sudden, right? It looks good. You hire a trainer and you work out for that first time. Okay, you work out for that first time and you get home that night and you wake up the next morning and you're literally like a baby giraffe trying to make it to the bathroom whose legs are giving out. And then you go to wash your hands and you can't lift your hands to your face <laughs> because your arms are so sore. And you know what my first thought was? I'll never go back there again. <laughs> F this. Okay, I'm just going to catch you know, muscles through osmosis. I'm going to sit near people that have muscles. I'll go hang out at the gym, but I'm not going to work out. But, you know, you come to your senses and you go again, and then you go again. And then after two weeks, Joe, you walk in the bathroom and you take your shirt off and you notice a change for the yeah. first time. That first time you notice a change, there's a chemical reaction that goes on in the brain. And your motivation to continue on this journey that you didn't want to initially continue on gets a spark. And you continue to go back. And now you're reaching for water instead of soda in the fridge. Yep, and now you're ordering grilled chicken instead of fried chicken. And then after a month, you're walking down the street and all the women, their heads are going. They're turning. Okay. And you're like, me? Because you're still carrying that old image of you, right? Yeah. And then after three months, you secretly find yourself looking forward to being at the gym. Now, you came from a place of, F you, Jim, I'm never going back there again, to, oh, I can't wait to make it there. And, and that is... You feel guilty if you miss a day. Okay. So that yeah. is the process of change in its rawest form, okay? And we're not even talking about addiction at this point. But when we look at addiction and we look at human behavior and how to change, that's what this is all about, right? 
we have lived in such a maladaptive pattern for so many years doing the wrong thing that as bad as it was for us, it was ours and we got comfortable and that was our home. And, you know, I equate it to, to prison. I've shared on this show before, I used to work in a maximum security prison in Miami, Everglades Correctional. And my population, I was a psych specialist, and my population was called close management, which was the prison within the prison. It was like the supermax, right? And these guys would stay in a cell 23 out of 24 hours a day, getting out three times a week to have wreck in a cage, handcuffed to go to the shower, unhandcuffed when they're in the shower, handcuffed again when they get out of the shower. And that was their life. Now, in prison, there were 1,700 inmates and 1,600 of them were on the compound where they were free to roam and work and eat and play basketball and run the track. And these guys who were stuck in these tiny little cells, every time they would come up to get to the point where they're about to be released to the general population, you know what they would do? What? They'd reoffend. They'd do something that would keep them back there. there. Yeah. And it's not a better way to exist. But they were so used to living in that tiny hole that became their world. Yeah, of course. So when we look at addiction and how we're living our life in addiction, it's the same thing. We get so used to these negative things happening to us with that small ounce of reward we get, we continue on, and then the thought of change scares the shit out of us. Yeah. Do you think uh, that? Um, I, I mean, I personally also think it's, it's self love. Um, you know, you really, I personally, I don't think that we're taught enough to love ourselves um, and to respect ourselves um, because we haven't forgiven whatever we may have done. And so sometimes that forces us to make addictive decisions mm-hmm. and you need to learn to love yourself. I personally, I mean, I, I, all of us struggle with that because, you know, some people don't. I mean, people are just like, yeah, they're, me, I, they're above all. I think that's a typical whole nother conversation. But I do believe that Loving yourself is very, very important. Forgiving, um, and the healing components that run with that. I mean, you used your voice to go ahead and whatever mess you in. Now it's your message, using that as the healing component and helping others because that that makes you, I think, get you out of a hole that you may be in or fall back into. So you're surrounding yourself in those particular particular situations. I don't know. That's how I feel from my background and knowing a little bit about therapy but i don't know joe your thoughts on that barry please share because i know people are watching i have you live on my actual feed too oh and sweet so i want you know to know that this is this is a very hot topic a very focused topic but it has such a large platform it can just blossom into so many different areas and you guys are doing a fantastic job i'm very i love you all for doing what you're doing because we need more people to devote themselves who have experienced this joe you know you're sharing this is hard for joe has never really gone out and spoke with this he, he struggled with this to like do i talk about this now or not so joe i love you for pushing and putting yourself Thank out you. there to do that because this could be this is part of your message your journey and by the way power it could help somebody else yeah why not you know mm-hmm. yeah the comeback story that's yeah. huge it's the, you yeah. know that's what power up was all about the radio show was the comeback story and anyone that has these stories, they don't have to be a celebrity. It could be just your everyday Joe. Okay. You're more than everyday yeah. Joe. Um, but, no ordinary <laughs> Joe. but Barry, you get my point. And I really want to express <laughs> that because this is a soft spot for me, just in general and people making you whatever mess they made, made your message. And Barry, you are indeed the, um, 
the, the epitome of that statement. You made your mess, your message, and look what you're doing today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you you made a really good point there when you talk about self love, or some people call it self esteem. You know, there there are people who come into treatment and believe that they have low self esteem. Yes. At the end of the day, ninety nine point nine percent of the people that enter into a treatment center do not have low self-esteem. They literally have no self-esteem because, hard right? What is self-esteem, right? I mean, but think about it, right? To build our self-esteem, we have to perform acts of self-love. We have to do esteemable actions. And most people who wind up in a treatment center have not been living that life of esteemable actions. In fact, the way that we treat ourselves in active addiction, if we had made that another person, Let's just say we'll, we'll call it uh, John, okay? And John is our addiction. So every time we got money in our pocket, John would steal it. Anytime we got a job, John would get us fired. Anytime we did something wrong, John would call the cops and have us arrested. John tries to kill us on a daily basis. John hurts our family members. John destroys our relationship with our children. John gets our kids taken away, right? Imagine if you had this person following you around that every move you made, he would be there to fuck it up, right? And then we come to find out that that person really is us. You can't argue with me and tell me that anybody who's been living an active addiction has any type of self-esteem whatsoever. So what we learn is once we surrender, now starts the building blocks of that self-love, starts the building blocks of that self-esteem, and I want you to picture it's like taking bricks and building a wall. And yeah. every esteemable action we do, we take another brick and build it on that wall. And it's our wall of self-esteem. It is and can't be understated how important self-love, and thank you for bringing that up, how important self-love is on the recovery journey. When we look at the 12 steps and it comes time to make that list to make an amends, my sponsor has told me, and I know it's in the literature, that our name should be on the top of that list. Yes. And that is, and some people are like, oh my God, no, I, you know, I didn't even put myself on there. I didn't even think of that. Our name should be at the top of that list because nobody in this world can hurt us the way we hurt ourselves. Joe, you went to prison as a direct result of your actions. Right. Okay. Can't blame right? anybody else. Right. No, it is a direct result of your actions. Now, granted, as we talked about about 20 minutes ago, more than likely, or we'll say definitively, you wouldn't have taken those actions had you not been in your addiction. But there is no one else to blame but yourself. Okay? And you take responsibility and you freaking grow from it and you move on. So, um, you know, I love you both. I think what I heard today was we are going to incorporate the um, the addiction corner at the at the six borough so we're going to have chef silver fox with his food and then i'll talk about how addicting it is to eat his food um, or any other addiction <laughs> any other addiction <laughs> issues is. so i didn't share this with joe but for um the sake of what you're doing um you know I love the fact that you incorporate music into the recovery. I think that is so beautiful and it really resonates and touches the depths of the soul. So great job you guys are doing, but I do want to do this and share that, that uh, when our website goes live, Joe, and I think, I think you'd be okay with this. We want you to have digital space 
on our website as a go-to source and you will be the official um, recovery center for anyone that needs to go for addiction. And um, so we want to make sure that you are inducted and declared as so within the I love that. I love that. Plan to see me. Plan to see me again on Fridays. Okay. It's any time. Come, you're welcome. I can't. I can't wait. Um, I'm going to have to get with Chef to find out the food he's bringing on for that show. We never never know. He just shows up with it. Listen, I got an in. I got an in. (laughs) I got an in. Okay, I told you. I'm going to his house. All right, I got an in. He will share with me. And and I learned two weeks ago that it's actually not bruschetta. It's bruschetta. I don't. I can't. I still can't say it. I can't say bruschetta. Um, Greg, uh, before we close here, and I know we're 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 up against the hour. Uh, Denise and Joe, do you guys have any links you guys want us to put up um, to kind of advertise? There we go. No ordinary Joe by Joe Rubo, releasing October twenty twenty two. What is that? Is that a book? Yes, sir. That's a novel. Okay. All right. A book coming out and a documentary to follow it. Okay. And then uh, if we can put up any links to their show, the six borough power up radio, um, how do we find that? How do our listeners find that? And what time? I think it's Fridays from six to eight or what is it? So actually you can actually catch us on um, WWNN on Fridays between six and eight. And you can find us on stage, well, on the stations, 96.9, 95.3, and then also 1470 AM. And you can catch us on our Facebook page live, which is Power Up Radio TV, um, The Six Borough. And we will also be starting to stream on other platforms. So stay tuned to find out where you can see us live. Fantastic. Uh, listen, and if you guys ever want to re-listen to the words of wisdom that you guys spilled today, Um, The Rhyme and Reason show is, again, on Spotify as well as Apple iTunes in their little podcast tab. Um, This has really been a pleasure having you both on. Uh, You know, more important, Joe, than you being the stepson of David Letterman. I think (laughs) your story and Denise's story are way more powerful, you know, than, than the David Letterman show or The Last American Virgin, right? But I think that your history has has given you a platform, right? And, and that you can and have the power, both of you guys to change lives. So thank thank you. you. Thank you again. Thanks again to all the listeners. You guys knocked it out of the park. Thank Thank you you for having us. See you soon, Ben. Yep. Uh, here it's good.